It is a pleasure to be with you and to open God's Word with you. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3, and if you're using a pew Bible, uh, it's on page 528. Psalm chapter 3. Follow along with me as I read this psalm. Psalm chapter 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our great God, we do thank you for this opportunity to come sing songs of worship to you. And now to continue our worship as we meditate on your word. Lord, help us to grow in our trust of you amid trials. Lord, help us to worship you in our walk, no matter what we face. Give us understanding of your word, and Lord, help us to apply it to our lives. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Perspective is a powerful thing. Your perspective can, can dictate how you handle the circumstances you face in life. The importance of your perspective can be illustrated in the life of John Owen. John Owen was a 17th century pastor in England who experienced much hardship in life. In 1644, John Owen married his wife, and over the course of their marriage, they had 11 children. Tragically, all but one of them died in infancy. A few years later, the surviving child died as a young adult. And a few years after that, Owen's wife passed away. John Owen faced much hardship in life. But despite his circumstances, Owen's perspective, the lens through which he viewed life and the troubles of life, was shaped by God's word. When consider, considering what scripture says about suffering, Owen wrote this. He said, when the hearts of men are ready to quake, and when they see all things around them filled with dread and terror and all help far away, it is their duty and wisdom to take off their thoughts from all outward and present appearances and to fix them on the presence of God. Owen could walk through difficulty while trusting God because his perspective was not on the outward and the present circumstances that he faced, but rather on God. And this is the lesson that we learn in Psalm chapter 3. From the painful cry in verse 1 to the declaration of praise in verse 8, David's circumstances do not change. But his perspective does. 
You see, during his trial, the recalling of truths about God reorients David's heart. And as a result, he can trust God. The placement of Psalm chapter 3 is important to note. It comes after Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. It's not profound, but it's important. Psalm 1, we see that there are two paths, that there are two ways, that there are two destinies. Psalm 1 teaches us how believers are supposed to live and the fact that those who obey God will be blessed. In Psalm 2, we see that God is the sovereign king over all things and that God's kingdom will stand even when the wicked rebel against him. These two psalms function as introductions to the entire book of psalms. And they're immediately followed by a psalm of lament, a cry to God in time of need. The psalms of lament make up the largest category in the Psalter. At least one-third of the 150 psalms are lament psalms. A third of every worship song that the nation of Israel would sing was a cry to God for deliverance amid pain. The placement of Psalm 3 at the beginning of the book of Psalms highlights the reality that life in a fallen world is not without pain or sorrow. After Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, the first psalm that we encounter is one of pain. David certainly knew this reality. This cry of God in time of pain in Psalm 3 took place during a specific time in the life of David. At the top of the psalm in, in all capital letters, the superscription reads this. It says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. And to understand the background of, of Psalm 3, we need to understand what was happening to David in 2 Samuel. Therefore, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. What we're going to see here is the context when David wrote Psalm 3. 2 Samuel chapter 11, David sinned against Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan the prophet rebuked David. And though David repented and, and was forgiven of his sin by the graciousness of God, Nathan the prophet told David that as a result of his sin, the sword shall not depart from your house. The effects of David's sin were pain and death within his family. We see these effects in Psalm or 2 Samuel, excuse me, 2 Samuel 13, when Amnon sinned against Tamar. And then in, a, in an act of revenge, Absalom murdered his brother Tamar, or Absalom murdered his brother Amnon. Fearing what may happen to him, Absalom then ran away. And after spending three years in exile, David invited Absalom back. But Absalom's return was not the joyful reunion that it seemed. You see, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, Absalom is planning a rebellion against David, a coup to make himself king. In verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Absalom require, acquires a, a vehicle and he organizes a campaign team to help himself become king. And Absalom would 
campaign outside the gate. And Absalom was a good-looking man. He looked like the type of man you would want to approach. In 2 Samuel 14.25, describes Absalom this way. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. So like Saul, Absalom was a handsome man. He looked like a king. And not only was he a handsome man, but he was also a politician. In verses 2 through 4 of chapter 15, Absalom would stand by the gate of the king's palace and he would hear the disputes and the claims of the people. He would listen to the claims of the people. And he would say, verse 3, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. And then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with his dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. Verse 5 says, Whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Like a true politician, Absalom would go among the people and he would be shaking hands and kissing babies. And it worked. Verse 6 says, Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Seeing what was happening, David ran for his life. Not fearing an army of a foreign nation, but fearing his own son. 2 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 30 says that David was fleeing and as he went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. You can turn back to Psalm Three. David understands trials and trouble, difficulty and despair. Psalm 3 is a song of, of personal pain and sorrow written in the face of difficulty. And it's a psalm for you and me. David's lamenting the difficulty of life. And it's a feeling to which we can relate. One commentator wrote this. He said, Historically, Christians have loved the Psalms because they express our deepest emotions and put into words our most severe experiences. Psalms of lament give us the words that, that we want to express during trial but can't seem to verbalize. Whether it's sickness or affliction, slander or, or some other crisis, life is hard. In this sin-cursed world, trials abound. So we understand what it means to experience difficulty and whether your problems are self-inflicted because of your own sin like David or a result of sinful people acting against you like David or simply a result of your circumstances of life in a fallen world we all know what it feels like to experience pain and suffering and so, psalms of lament, like Psalm 3, 
resonate with our hearts. But Psalm 3 is not merely a psalm of lament. It's also a song about trusting God. A lament, as as one author so helpfully defines it, is a prayer of pain that leads to trust. You see, Psalm 3 is given to us, given to you and I today, to teach us how to trust God in the midst of a fallen world. Psalm 3 is given to us to, to reset and to reorient our hearts when it feels like the walls of this life are crashing down on us. So this morning, as we look at Psalm 3, we will see three steps to reorient our hearts so that we can trust God in the midst of a fallen world. Three steps to reorient our hearts so that we can trust God in the midst of a fallen world. The first step seen in verses 1 and 2 is to take your trouble to the Lord. Take your trouble to the Lord. Look at verses 1 and 2. David writes, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Three times in two verses, David describes his adversaries as many. His foes are great. His circumstances are, are painful, and this trial seems to get, be getting worse and worse by the minute. Notice what his adversaries are saying in verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. These words are, are likely a reference to the words that Shemei yelled at, at David as he was fleeing from Absalom. 2 Samuel 16, Shemei shouted, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, Your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. David's enemies begin to taunt him, to mock him. As David is facing the threat of death, the temptation from his enemies is a temptation to abandon his trust in God. To believe that that God would not deliver David from his trials. That there is no hope for him in God. Despite the pain, despite the taunts, where does David go during his trouble? David takes his troubles to the Lord. And when we experience pain and hardship in, in our lives, we are to cry out with David, Oh Lord, when problems and pain, anxiety and anguish come upon you, believer, take your problems to the Lord. Go to Him in prayer. Amid difficulties, our reaction must not be, what can I do to fix this? It must not be, the Lord won't deliver me from this situation. It must not be, I have sinned too much for the Lord to forgive me. Instead, our reaction to trials and difficulties that we face must be, oh Lord. We must take our troubles to the Lord. And on what basis does David cry out to God He cries out to God, not because of anything he's done to earn the right to approach God. 
not because he's done anything to, to gain access to God. David comes to God because of the promises of God. Because of the covenant that God made with him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Because that God promised that he would protect David. That God promised that he would not forsake David. As believers, we come to God in our prayers, not on the basis of anything that we have done, but because of the work of Christ on the cross. Because Christ has cleansed us of our sin and has provided us access to God. The author of Hebrews writes it this way. In Hebrews chapter 4, he says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amidst a cry to God in pain, let us go to God and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Take your trouble to the Lord. And if you are here today and you do not know the Lord, cry out to Him today. Today, cry out to God for salvation. Because you see, more significant than our daily problems and pain is the problem we face because of our sin. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages that we have earned, the wages of our sin is death. But the good news of the gospel is that everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And though the problems of life don't go away, those who believe in Christ are, were delivered from the ultimate problem that our sins demand just punishment by God. And now through the work of Christ, we can come to God and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Friends, when living life in a fallen world feels unbearable. We need to heed the words of Peter and cast our anxieties upon him because he cares for you. How do we reorient our hearts to trust God in a fallen world? Well, first, we need to take our troubles to the Lord. Second, Second step to reorienting your hearts to trust God in a fallen world is to renew your confidence in the Lord. To renew your confidence in the Lord. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Between verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, there is a dramatic shift. David has lifted his eyes off of his circumstances and his present troubles, and he has fixed them on the Lord. And this is so important for us to see amidst our trials. In verses 1 and 2, David is overwhelmed. But as soon as he places his eyes on the Lord, something changes. His circumstances have not yet changed. From verse 1 to verse 8, David's trouble has not gone away, but his perspective has changed. He has turned his attention from his enemies 
to his God. And there is a lesson for us here. When our eyes are on our troubles, we are overwhelmed. But when our eyes are on God, we have trust in him. You see, how you view and handle life depends significantly on your perspective. For example, you might remember in Numbers chapter 13, 12 spies are sent out to scout out the land of Canaan before the conquest of the promised land. And after a 40-day scouting trip, they return to give a report. Ten of the spies were overwhelmed by the strength and the size of the Canaanites. So they said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. But two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able to overcome it. What's the difference between those two reports? They both saw the same things. They both saw the land. They both saw the giants. What's different? James Montgomery Boyce says it this way. The ten looked only at the giants and forgot about God, with the result that they seemed in their own eyes to shrink to the size of grasshoppers. The two spies kept their eyes on God, and for them, it was the giants who appeared small. Perspective is a powerful thing. You see, when you stare at your problems, your problems will seem large and will seem daunting. But if you take your eyes off your circumstances and you place them on God, you can rest knowing that He is in control. That He is in control. How are we to trust God in the midst of a fallen world? We're to place our eyes on the Lord and remember who He is. In our suffering, we must call to mind what we know to be true about God. We must fix our minds on the character and the nature of God because that is what David did. And he renews his confidence in the Lord by reminding himself who God is. David does so in verses 3 and 4 by reminding himself of four truths about God. Look again at verse 3. First, David renews his confidence in the Lord by reminding himself that God is a protecting God. That God is a protecting God. Verse 3 says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Now David's a warrior. David is a military man. David understands battle and the different shields that would be used in battle. Typically, there was a longer shield for those who were much less mobile and more stationary, archers and, and people like that. And then there was a shorter, more lightweight, rounded shield that was much more mobile and used by those who engage in, in hand-to-hand combat. Here, David says that God is a shield about him. David does not describe God according to the, the shields that he is familiar with in battle, but rather as a shield that protects him from the enemy from every side, from every angle. David says God is his protector. As one commentator wrote, 
God was the only defense that he needed against numerous adversaries. If God was his defense, who could harm him? Believer, God is our shield. God is our refuge. God is our strength. In the midst of a fallen world, we can trust in God because he is our protector. And when the troubles of of life hurt us, when the troubles of life hurt us, we can know that he is our ultimate protection because our salvation is secure in him. We can say with the Apostle Paul that I am sure that neither life nor death nor things present nor things to come nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God is our protector. Not only that, David reminds himself, second, that God is a sufficient God. Not only is God a protecting God, but God is a sufficient God. Look at verse 3. It says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. David calls God his, his glory. And usually we think of us giving glory to God, but here David says that God is his glory. And the term glory carries the idea of of weightiness, of heaviness, of substance, of of significance, and of, of satisfaction. Think about this. David is running for his life. He has lost everything. He's lost the kingdom. He's lost his crown, his throne, and the comforts of his own home and yet God was his glory you see David realizes that his significance was not in his kingship but his significance was in God God was his glory and because of that he places his value and his significance in God he found his satisfaction in God alone Even though David had lost everything, he still had his relationship with God, and so he had everything he needed. Ask yourself, where do you place your glory? Where do you find your satisfaction? What is it that if you only had that one thing, you would have enough. Where do you place your glory? Do you place your glory in your identity, in your accomplishments? Do you place it in in family or in your possessions? As Christians, our glory is Christ. And Romans 1 points out that the temptation of this world is for us to exchange the glory of the immortal God and place it on created things for something other than God to be our glory. But we must say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Christ is to be our glory. You see, David teaches us That if Christ is your glory, then when the trials of this world come, that when life in a fallen world takes away everything that you have, Christ is still your glory. That he is sufficient to you and he is all you need. And then you're able to sing with the hymn writer, it is well, it is well with my soul. Because Christ is our glory. 
Third, God is not only a protecting God, God is not only a sufficient God, but third, David reminds us that God is also a restoring God. Look at the last line of verse 3. David calls God the lifter of my head. Now, in the ancient world, victorious kings in an honor and shame culture would humiliate their enemies by placing their foot on the neck of the conquered king to be helpless and vulnerable underneath the foot of your enemy was the ultimate expression of shame that you've been crushed and defeated and so uh, to lift up the head is as a hebrew expression for restoring someone who's been cast down to the dignity to his dignity and position you'll remember in genesis 40 Joseph tells the cupbearer, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. In Psalm 3, David calls God the lifter of his head. Here he's expressing confidence in God's ability to raise him, to raise the humble and to abase the mighty. David was confident that he would not be humiliated under Absalom's foot, but rather that God would restore him. And David renews his confidence in the Lord by reminding himself that God is in control. That God is in control. As the sovereign king of the universe God can put David back on the throne if he wills. And that is what David has his hope in. And by reminding ourselves that God is sovereign, we renew our confidence in him amidst the difficulty. It helps us walk through our trials. In his book, When Pain is Real and God Seems Silent, Sinclair Ferguson, or excuse me, Ligon Duncan, wrote this. God's sovereignty helps us bear up under the perplexities of life. As believers today, we know amid our sufferings that God will one day lift us up out of this fallen world, that he will glorify us and that he will give us resurrection bodies that no matter what we face today that one day we will be lifted up with him to worship in his presence for eternity there's a fourth truth that David reminds himself of David reminds himself that God is an accessible God that God is an accessible God look at verse 4 He says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David cries out to God in prayer, and God answers him. And notice that God answered David from his holy hill. God answered David from Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion was the location from which King David ruled his throne symbolized his authority also located on mount zion was the ark of the covenant which symbolized the presence of god david may have lost his throne but he knows that god has not lost his throne and david reflects on God's sovereign rule. But furthermore, though David is far from Zion, though he's far from the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized God's presence, David can cry out to God and God answers him. 
friends, God is accessible. God is accessible in your trials. When difficulties come, loneliness, an ailing body, an unfair supervisor at work, when, when pain surrounds you, job loss, financial struggles, when the phone rings and it's cancer, call out to God because He is accessible. You can renew your confidence in the Lord because He hears your prayers. Spurgeon wrote, We need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. We need not fear a frowning world while we rejoice in a prayer-hearing God. Notice the result of this renewed confidence that David had. Look at verses 5 and 6. David says, I laid down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David sleeps while trouble surrounds him. And David taking a nap might seem like a strange decision for someone who's on the run for his life. But still, David says, as one author wrote, Because you, O Lord, are what you are, I can go take a snooze. As David recalls that God is a protecting, sufficient, restoring, and an accessible God, his confidence in the Lord is renewed, and the result is trust. Such trust that he can say in verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Spurgeon said it this way, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving him perfect peace. David had such trust that he could go take a nap. And that peace that David experienced when he renewed his confidence in God was a result of, of not looking at his problems, but looking at God. He reminded himself of who God is and, and of what he has done. And as a result, his confidence in God was renewed. And we must do the same. You see, when pain and grief afflict us, we must remind ourselves of the character and the nature of God, who God is and what he has done. Who is God is the question to ask yourself amidst your troubles. So first, we take our trouble to the Lord. Second, we are to renew our confidence in the Lord. And finally, we are to place our hope in the Lord. We're to place our hope in the Lord. Look at verses 7 and 8. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. In verses 7 and 8, David places his hope in the Lord. And the language that, that David employs reading these verses can be uncomfortable. We're not used to this. I, I'm guessing for most of you, you don't pray this way. In, in the ancient Near East, to strike someone on the cheek was an insult, much like it is today. And the breaking of teeth would either 
refer to the removing of teeth of a wild animal so it could no longer harm you. Or it was sometimes given as a punishment to someone who, who lied or slandered another person. They would just knock out their teeth and they couldn't do it anymore. David is asking God for his enemies to be insulted, for them to no longer be able to harm him or slander him. But it's important to to remember that David is not praying for God to punish someone he's mad at. He's not praying this prayer just at any one and in any circumstance. Instead, as the God-appointed king of Israel, he's asking God to return justice on those who have acted wickedly. And David is confident that God will act justly. So confident that he says, you strike all my enemies. He doesn't say, you will strike, but you strike. In Hebrew, David puts it in a tense that's such as if it's already happened. He has such confidence. It's, it's as if I had said, I have already eaten lunch. And it's not quite lunchtime. David has confidence. David knows that God will act justly. How does this apply to us today? What's the significance of verse 7 to us today? What do we learn from this amidst trials? Well, we find application to these verses when we remember the character and the nature of God. That God is holy and He is just and He is righteous. We need to remember God's character. And being just and holy, God must punish wickedness. For God to to set up the new heavens and the new earth one day, a kingdom free from sin and death, God must punish all sin. But for God to act justly, He must punish us too. And that, that is why we need the cross. Because on the cross, God satisfies the demands of His justice by punishing Jesus for the sins that we have committed. Though justice should mean that we are all punished in hell. Through the grace of God, forgiveness is found. Though the justice of God should mean that we are all punished in hell, through the grace of God, forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ. And you can place your hope in the Lord, not only for salvation, but also for vindication. Because you know, like David, that God will one day judge the wicked. And so when the trials of life come, when people wrong you and sin against you, you can leave retribution to the Lord because you know that He is a God of justice. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. One day... All sin will be punished, either in hell or on the cross. And understanding these realities, we can say with David in verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And the truth found in verse 8 is as true as it was for David. Salvation is of the Lord whether it's deliverance from difficulty or salvation from sin and its effects, salvation ultimately comes from the hand of a gracious God. Salvation is not found in religion. It's not found in in works. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ. 
You see, salvation comes through another son of David. This son, unlike Absalom, was sinless and perfect. But like David, this son knew the pain of life in a fallen world. Like David, Jesus was rejected as king. Like David, Jesus walked up the Mount of Olives. Like David, Jesus' enemies taunted him. While he was on the cross, they yelled at him, He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. Amid his difficulty and despair, Jesus responds in in obedience to the Father. He had a perfect trust in God. Such trust that Peter writes when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. On the cross, Christ suffered for the sins that we would commit so that if we repent and believe in him, we can have eternal life. How do we trust God in the midst of a fallen world? We take our troubles to the Lord in prayer. We renew our confidence in the Lord by reminding ourselves of his attributes. And we place our hope in him, knowing that one day he will right all wrongs. And that ultimately, we have salvation in his son and nothing could separate us from the love of God. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that amidst our difficulty and despair, we can come to you. Lord, that you care for us, that you are our protector and our shield. Lord, that you are a just and a loving God and that we will one day be raised up with you through the work of Christ on the cross. Father, help us to apply these truths to our lives. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.